Two weeks ago, I started part two of the empty tomb, the appearance of the resurrected Christ. I only got through point one. Today, I'm going to finish the sermon with points two and three. The last time in point one, we learned that Mary didn't recognize Jesus when she saw him. She thought he was the gardener. Mary's mind was shrouded with darkness, and all she could see was the loss of Jesus. She couldn't see anything else. She couldn't understand that her master was to rise from the dead. Even though Jesus said to her, he would rise from the dead numerous times. Not only Mary, but all the other disciples. It was when Jesus called her by name, Mary, that she recognized him. And I believe that when Jesus called her by name is when he chose to reveal her to himself. Or reveal himself to her. And the question to you was, do you recognize the presence of Christ? That was what my challenge to you was two weeks ago in point one. Do you understand that he is with you even through the toughest times in your life? Or do you say within your heart, where is the Lord? Where is he? When you're going through a tough time, do you say, where is he? My prayer for those of you who know the Lord and were here for that message two weeks ago, that you encourage that Jesus is alive and active in your life, whether you feel it or not. And no matter what you're going through, he's there. If you truly belong to him. And if you don't know the Lord, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior, you can know his presence by believing in his name. Today I'm going to finish with points two and three. Point two, do you have the peace of the resurrected Christ? And point three, do you believe the word of the resurrected Christ? Let's turn to John chapter 20, and we're going to look at verses 11 through 31. Excuse me, verses 19 through 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among, stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed him his hands and his side. Then his disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold the forgiveness of many, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came, and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to them, Have you believed because you have seen him? Because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written 
that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this Word. Illuminate our minds and hearts to understand this Word so that we may become more like Jesus. We may understand that His presence is always with us, that His peace is always with us, and that His Word is true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Some of you may remember the old movie starring Shirley Temple called The Little Princess. In this movie, her character was named Sarah. Her father was a captain in the British Army and was sent off to Africa to fight in the Boer War. I believe it was the Second Boer War. So he puts her in boarding school until he would return. She's treated very well like a princess until the news arrived that her father was missing and presumed dead. Now there's no more money for her. And Miss Minchin, the head of the boarding school, realizes what the death of her father means the end of money that is owed, and she begins to treat Sarah harshly and like a servant. In other words, she was going to make her pay for her stay. But Sarah is not convinced that her father is dead, and begins to search for him. In the meantime, unknown to Sarah, her father is brought to a hospital, but due to his amnesia, is unidentified. He's scheduled to be transferred to another hospital the next day. That morning, Miss Minchin discovers Sarah's new things that some people have given her, and assumes they are stolen. She looks, or I should say she locks Sarah into await the police. Sarah desperately escapes in order to check the hospital to find her father. She is stopped at every turn until she stumbles into Queen Victoria, who is visiting the soldiers. The Queen allows Sarah to search, and finally she finds her father. She hugs him and cries, but is devastated when she does not recognize her. When he does not recognize her. Finally, she gets through to him. If you remember the movie, she turns his head and is looking at him and saying, Daddy, it's Sarah, it's Sarah. Finally, she gets through to him and they are happily reunited. Now this is, of course, Hollywood. and Things don't always happen this way. And it's a heartwarming story, of, of course, about a little girl who searches for her daddy and her persistence paid off. She found him. Jesus told the unbelieving Jews in John chapter 5, verses 39 to 40. He says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Like Sarah searching for her father. If you search for Jesus with all your heart in the Word of God, you will find him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jews were not looking for Jesus in the scriptures. They were searching the scriptures, but they were not looking for him. My proposition and my challenge to you is do you see the resurrected Christ in the scriptures? And if you see him in the scriptures, do you believe him? When you do see the resurrected Christ in the scriptures, not only will you recognize his presence in your life, which was point one two weeks ago, but you will also have the peace of Christ in your life. Point two, do you have the peace of the resurrected Christ? Let's look at, 20, at verses 19 and 20 again. On the evening of that day, first day of the week, the doors being locked, 
where disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed him his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Here's the scenario. It's Sunday night after the resurrection. And the disciples are behind closed doors because they were fearful of the Jews. Mary had already testified to them that she had seen the Lord and he was alive, which should have settled their fears. But tremendous fear gripped their hearts and minds. After all, the Jews just killed their Messiah because they wanted to enter this movement. So what's to prevent them from finding Jesus' disciples and killing them also to finally put this movement to a rest? Maybe they remember Jesus telling them that a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. We see that in John 16. Or in John 15. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Whatever was going on through their minds, they were afraid of what the Jews might do to them. And they were behind locked doors afraid. John tells us this astounding thing. Jesus came through and stood among them. Now I think... John makes a point of saying twice and here and in verse 26 that the doors were locked. They were bolted shut tight. Not only to tell us that the disciples were afraid, that's why they locked the doors, but also to tell us that solid matter didn't stop Jesus, who was now glorified to go right through the door. We see that in the previous verses. When Peter and John looked in the tomb, they saw the clothes exactly as if he passed right through them. So Jesus appears to them and tells the fearful disciples, Peace be with you. This was a common Jewish greeting, which you may recognize as Shalom, which is still used today. This is exactly what the disciples needed. Shalom, peace. Peace to calm their fears. But the disciples had more than just fear of the Jews. When Jesus appeared, they thought he was a ghost, as on another occasion, you may remember, when they were fishing, or actually going to the other side that Jesus told them to meet them on the other side of the, of the sea, I believe it was the Sea of Galilee. And they were in the middle of the night rowing and rowing, but the wind and the waves were too tough, and Jesus came walking to them on the water, and they thought... They thought they saw a ghost. Okay, so that was one fear they had. And, and the, another fear is internal fear is that because they deserted Jesus prior to the cross, they may have fear like, how would Jesus really accept me? Or would God accept me now? And especially Peter who denied Christ. So they had all kinds of fears bottled up in their minds and hearts. <clears throat> but the omniscient Savior says the exact thing they need. Peace be with you. He shows them his hands and his side to prove to them it's really him and not a ghost. They not only needed the peace that would calm their fears, they needed peace with God. They didn't only need the peace of God, they needed peace with God. Let's look at Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that before salvation came to your life, you were enemies of God, no matter what your feelings about Him were? We were at spiritual war with Him. You were not at peace with God. The kind of peace the Bible is talking about here is not subjective peace, but objective peace. A fact. 
The fact is that because you receive Christ by faith, you have now been declared righteous. You have been reconciled to God and the war is over. You have peace with God. It's like two countries being at war with each other. They make a peace treaty and now they're at peace with each other. The disciples, because of Jesus' atoning work on the cross, now have peace with God. A fact that will never change. So it's possible here that Jesus pronounced peace to them. First, because they are now reconciled with God, objective peace. And second, to calm their fears, subjective peace. They needed peace with God. Do you know there's two kinds of peace in the Bible? Did you know that? Peace with God and the peace of God. Let's look at Romans 1, Romans, I'm sorry, 5, verse 1. I'm going to show you the difference between peace with God and the peace of God. I believe Jesus was proclaiming both peace to them. You now, you now disciples, my disciples, my, my, my chosen ones, you now have peace with God. But I'm going to give you the peace of God in your hearts. Romans 5, 1. Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if you know this, maybe some of you do, maybe some of you don't. That before salvation came to a life, you were enemies of God. I mean, the Bible tells us we were, at, we were at enmity with God. No matter what our feelings were about God, before I came to faith in Christ, I thought I loved Christ. But really, I was an enemy of God because I didn't know God. We were at spiritual war with him. You were not at peace with him. This kind of peace the Bible is talking about here is not subjective peace. You know, the peace of tranquility, but objective peace, a fact. The fact is that because you received Christ by faith, you now have been declared righteous. You have been reconciled to God, and the war is now over. You have peace with God. It's like two countries being at war with each other, and then they make a treaty, a peace treaty with each other, and now they're, they're at peace with each other. The disciples, because of Jesus' work on the cross, now have peace with God, a fact that will never change. If you're a Christian, you have peace with God, whether you feel it or not. A fact that will never change. So it's possible here that Jesus pronounce peace to them first because they are now reconciled with God objective peace and second to calm their fears subjective peace when Christ came into my life in 1978 I had peace with God and at times I didn't feel saved because of some past sin that was brought to my remembrance or when I slipped and fell into some sin it didn't change the fact that I had eternal peace with God Christ paid for all my sins, past, present, and future. The fact will never change because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That fact will never change. But there are times when I didn't feel peace. There are times I may experience anxiety. I may experience fear, worry, etc. And I need the peace of God. So I may pray alone. I may pray with others. And I may read the scriptures. But when I do that... All of a sudden, peace fills my heart. Thank you, Jesus. One day, my wife and I 
we were being persecuted by one of our family members. And we woke up in the middle of the night, I think it was Christmas Eve, around that time, we woke up in the middle of the night, and we were both troubled. And she started expressing to me the fears and the anxiety that she was having, and we began to pray. And we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed. And my wife could attest to this, both of us. Probably about the same time, a peace flooded our hearts. We went back to sleep and we woke up refreshed with no anxiety, no fears. Also, when we sin, we have no peace. When we sin, let's face it, we lose our peace, don't we? But God, in His mercy, leads us to repentance and we ask for forgiveness and the peace of God floods our hearts. You see, objective peace with God, our standing with God never changes. But our day-to-day internal peace can fluctuate. If you don't have the peace of the resurrected Christ, look to Him, call upon Him, trust Him, repent of your sins. When the disciples saw Jesus, they had peace and they rejoiced. And Luke tells us, believe it or not, Luke tells us they still didn't believe for joy and were marveling. I didn't understand that, but then I read something and I said, that makes sense. In other words, they couldn't believe their eyes. It was too good to be true. For those of us who have peace with God, in other words, we're saved, the best way we can experience a day-to-day subjective peace is what Paul told the church at Rome and the church at Philippi. And listen to these two scriptures. Romans 12.2. Paul tells the Roman church, he says... Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, peace in your heart, you know what it comes from? A transformed mind. And the best way to get that transformed mind is what Paul told the Philippians. This is how the Holy Spirit changes our thinking. Let's go to Philippians 4. Verses 4 to 9. Paul said, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brother, brothers, What is true, what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, what is lovely, what is commendable, if there there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about such things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Let me ask you this question. Do you want peace? Do you want peace? Okay. Do what Paul said. Rejoice in the Lord first. When you're filled with anxiety, fears, rejoice in the Lord. Paul said it twice. He said, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. And then he says, don't be anxious. Instead, when we get anxious, what do we do? We get to pray. And pray with thanksgiving. Let the gratitude and the thanksgiving of what God has done for you fill your hearts. And then, read, think, and dwell on the scriptures. 
And then, put what you know to be true from the Bible into practice. When you read what Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 9, that's what you get. You rejoice, be anxious about nothing, instead pray, read and think and meditate on the scriptures, and put what you know into practice. And God says, you will not only have peace, but the peace that passes understanding. Let's go to verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So again, Jesus tells them here, peace be with you. He's trying to, he wants them to have peace. He wants them to have, uh, calm their anxieties and their fears. But after he pronounces peace to them, he now commissions them. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So Jesus is now glorified, going back to the Father, is sending his disciples back into the world to continue his mission. He's commissioning them. He's sending them. This may be John's version of the Great Commission in Matthew's Gospel. Let's turn to Matthew uh, chapter 28, verses 19 to 20. Jesus said, through Matthew, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And Jesus told this to his disciples but it applies to every believer throughout the generations. You and I are sent by Christ. Now that Jesus finished the work of redemption of the cross, he sent all of his followers to go and to make disciples. If you know Christ, somebody is discipling you, you in turn go disciple someone else. That's why we have adult Bible study. That's why we have the woman's Bible study. That's why we have men's fellowship. That's why we have the preaching of the word. We disciple we need to become learners and followers of Christ. Not just to say I'm saved, but we need to be learners and followers of Christ. And Jesus said, go make disciples. He didn't say go make converts, that's assumed. He said, go make disciples. When you make converts, you can't leave them there following. You go and disciple them. How do we make disciples? Well, first of all, you go. We're going out into the streets this Saturday to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Okay? You might be Sharing Christ with your neighbor. But then we begin to disciple them. We baptize them first. We have our baptism every August here at Sonship. And then we begin to teach them all that Jesus commanded us. And Jesus commissions us to carry out his mission. We're not here just to get saved and go to heaven. Please don't be the Christian that just says, I'm content with going to heaven. I don't have to share my faith with anybody. I don't have to do anything. No, God saves us to go and share in our faith and make disciples of all the nations. And after Jesus commissions them to carry on his mission, he now empowers them. Let's read verse 22. He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now there's much discussion concerning this verse amongst various scholars. What did John mean exactly here? It would take way too much time and information to explain what it meant, what he meant. And you'd probably leave more confused than, than when I first started. So I did the work and I'm going to simplify it. Okay? 
So the day of Pentecost had not yet come. When all the disciples were in the upper room, and God and the Holy Spirit filled them, and they all began to speak in tongues, and had extraordinary power to preach the gospel. That was the day of Pentecost. That hadn't taken place yet. So when Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit, was it a preview of Pentecost? Or was it symbolic? And I think it was both. I think it was symbolic when he breathed on him, and I think it was also a preview of what was going to take place on Pentecost in around 40 days, when Jesus ascended back to the Father and the Holy Spirit came. First, we need to understand that breath can be translated spirit. Breath is symbolic for spirit. God created Adam, and in Genesis 2-7, it tells us this. It says, The Lord formed the man of dust from the earth, or from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. You see, God gave life to Adam by breathing into him. The breath of God is what? It's life. The breath of God is his spirit. It's, it's symbolic. Breath is not the actual what we do, we exhale our carbon dioxide, is it? We don't, that's not what it's talking about. It's, it's symbolic. Pneuma. It's, it's talking about his spirit. It's, it's the spirit that gives life. If you're a Christian, God made you alive with his spirit. He breathed on you. This is not intellectual, but it's spiritual. But what Jesus was doing here was giving a preview and a symbolism of the day when the Holy Spirit would fill them. I like what Dr. Ossie Sproul says. He said, when Jesus breathed on his disciples, he was equating his breath with the giving of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had already promised that he would send the Spirit in John 16, 7. And now he dramatized that promise. He gave the disciples a foretaste of what would take place at Pentecost when he would pour out the Holy Spirit upon them. They would be empowered by Christ's Spirit. You're empowered by Christ's Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, if Christ is your Lord and Savior, you have the same resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead. Now, I, I, you could say, well, that's hard to believe. But that's the truth. The same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same Spirit that reigns in your mortal body. And the same Spirit that empowers you. Christ doesn't just send you to carry on His mission. He empowers you with His Spirit. I have a story how God took me, this man, when I first became a believer, and how God sent me to someone and empowered me to preach the gospel to this person. This person was a man who had a sex operation and now became a woman. Now, of course, he was still a man because you change the outward appearances, but God made you a, 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 a man, you're a man. You might have female characteristics, but you're still a man. And this was when I was a Christian, maybe three years. And his name was Renee. He changed his name to Renee. And he worked for this haircutting salon. salon. And the owner of the haircutting salon called me up one day and said, 
John, please talk to Renee. And they referred to her as she. He said, she is either going to have a nervous breakdown or she is going to commit suicide. So I'm a new Christian now. You've got to understand something. I didn't understand a lot of things. I said, okay, I'll speak with her. And I was laying on my bed one day and thinking about what, what am I going to possibly say to this person? And the thought came into my mind, write a letter. So I started writing a letter. And halfway through the letter, I stopped. I got up. I was on this, we lived in this two-family home. I went downstairs to my friend Kathy who led me to the Lord and I told her the story. And I said, would you mind praying with me? And she said, absolutely. And I, I told her what happened and she began to pray and we began to pray. We put our hands symbolically on the letter that God would give me the words. That was over. I went back upstairs. I finished writing the letter. I gave it to the person to give to Renee. It was delayed for some reason. A week later, they gave this letter to Renee. A week after that, I get a phone call. I forgot all about it. And I get a phone call. I said, hello? I said, who is this? I said, Renee. I said, I couldn't, read, I couldn't put two and two together. I said, Renee, who? You know, Renee, the one you wrote the letter to. I said, oh, how are you doing? Fine. Um, how do we go about this? I said, go about what? She said, go about what you wrote in the letter. Then I realized when I wrote in the letter, I wrote about how sins could be forgiven, Jesus Christ could come into a life, whatever I said. I remember everything. She prayed with me. Christ came into her life. People were telling me she was glowing, or he was glowing. Her life was changed. She didn't seem depressed anymore. She came to our Bible study. She was a changed, he was a changed man. Two weeks later, she was brutally murdered. I mean, brutally. I mean, it, I was a new Christian once again. I don't need to belabor that point, but for a new Christian, that devastated me. <clears throat> I didn't know how to think, what to think. I was totally devastated. God, why could you, how could this happen? I let out of Jesus Christ, how could this happen? I went to my pastor, and my pastor said to me, John, God snatched him before the storm got too great. And I'm telling you this, this thought came into my heart and my mind, and I believe it was from the Lord, and it said, she may have destroyed her body, but I saved her soul. Because in heaven, there's neither male nor female. And I believe, on that day... When I'm resurrected back to life, I will see her and rejoice with her in our Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the power of God in a person's life. Not all of your stories are going to be as dramatic. I don't think of it. I never had a story as dramatic as that. But when God sends you, He empowers you. You never have to be afraid to share Christ with anybody. Jesus said... At the end of his great commission in Matthew, he said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He commissioned the disciples, then he said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He sends you, he empowers you, and he gives you authority. Let's read verses 23. 
or verse 23. He says, if you forgive, if forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now this verse has been grossly, grossly misinterpreted by the Roman Catholic Church. They believe that the apostles had the authority to forgive sins. And the priest has the authority to absolve uh, people from sins. But that is just absolutely not true. It's not scriptural. There's nowhere in scripture says the priest uh, can absolve you from sins. Uh, and, and this was passed down through the centuries. But the Bible teaches us this. Only God Amen. can forgive sins. Amen. What this verse is saying that any Christian can say to a person who repents and believes the gospel message that they are forgiven. Or if a person refuses the gospel message, a Christian can tell that person that they are not forgiven and they will die in their sins and go to hell when they die. What you are doing is telling them what God has already said in His Word. What does the Bible say? It says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So you can tell a person that says, I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ suffered and died for my sins and rose again from the dead. You can tell that person on the authority of the Word of God, you're saved. Or you can say, if a person says, I don't believe it, I don't believe it, I don't believe it. You can tell them on the authority of the Word of God, well, you will die and go to hell. That's the authority of the Word of God. That's not your opinion. That's what God says. Here's the church's authority. Here's my authority. Here's your authority. The word of God. To declare what it says. That's our authority. That's where our authority comes from. When Brian and myself come up to this pulpit. It's not our authority that we are talking about. It's the authority of the word of God. And that's the church's authority. And that's what sonship's authority is. The word of God. You have the authority of Christ. Dr. Joe MacArthur says, When believers act and speak in accord with His Word, they can do so knowing that He stands in agreement with them. So, when you are speaking the Word of God to someone accurately, because there are a lot of people that speak the Word of God inaccurately, when you are speaking the Word of God accurately, Christ is standing there with you, agreeing with you. A police officer carries his badge. That badge represents the power of the law, right? So when a police officer stops you for driving too fast, what does he do? He gives you a ticket. He's backed by the law, which is broken, which is, which is actually backed by the state and the people. He has no authority without the city and the state who gave him that badge. But with it, the officer with complete confidence can give you a summons or arrest you if necessary. I hope not, but he could. Because the city and state are in agreement with him or her. Your badge of authority, my badge of authority is the word of God. I don't have, if this was the word of God, this would be it. When we speak accurately, Christ is agreeing with you and me. So point one, two weeks ago, do you recognize the presence of Christ? Point two, do you have the peace of the resurrected Christ? And point three... Do you believe the word of the resurrected Christ? Let's look at verses 24 and 29. To 29, I should say. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with him when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. 
But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my fingers into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. Now Thomas, obviously, was not there when Jesus first appeared to his disciples. When they told him, We have seen the Lord, Thomas refused to believe. Now I think Thomas got a raw deal. What do we always call Thomas? Doubting Thomas. First of all, he wasn't doubting Thomas, because he didn't doubt, he just didn't believe. I mean, he wasn't doubting, or maybe, maybe, you know, I have, no, he just said, I don't believe it unless I see it. But he got a bad nickname, because we must remember when Jesus said that he planned to go to Jerusalem in John 11, if you go to John 11, Jesus said, I plan to go back to Jerusalem. His disciples knew It was at Jerusalem that the Jews tried to kill you, Jesus. You're going to go back there now? The Jews are trying to kill you. Why would you go back there? And they were horrified that Jesus wanted to go back there. But it was Thomas. It was Thomas who said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Now we can say what we want to say about Thomas. But Thomas was courageous. He was willing to die with Jesus if it was necessary. Thomas loved the Lord. And he must have been crushed when Jesus was crucified. So when the disciples said to him, we have seen the Lord. It was kind of hard for him to believe. Maybe he didn't want to get his uh, his hopes high. After all, he didn't expect Jesus to die. And now they're telling him he's alive. It was way, way too much for Thomas. And I think every Christian, I think all of us. We can identify with Thomas. And and if we were there when Jesus walked the earth and had close fellowship with the Master, saw the miracles, heard the teachings, and then Jesus was crucified, something we never would expect, we would probably not have believed either. That something happened that was going to change Thomas forever. Jesus appeared again to his disciples. But this time, Thomas was there. And what does Jesus do? He greets them, peace. And then singles out Thomas. He says, Thomas, come here. Put your finger here. Put it in my hands. And put your hands and place it into my side. Now whether Thomas did it or not, we don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But Jesus said to him, don't disbelieve, Thomas. Believe. And what does Thomas exclaim? My Lord and my God. He saw and believed. By the way, this is another claim to Christ's divinity. Notice that Jesus doesn't correct Thomas, but allows him to worship. If Jesus wasn't God, he would have said, no, stop saying that. That is reserved for God and God alone. But he didn't say that. You know why? Because Jesus is Lord and he's God. And the word Lord is the same Old Testament word for Jehovah in the Old Testament. 
the same word used in the Old Testament for Jehovah. There's many words for Lord, but this particular word is the same word that they used for God in the Old Testament. So when he said, my Lord and my God, he was saying, Jehovah God, you are Jehovah God. He is God. Never forget that. Never, ever forget that. Because all the, this is what separates all the religions of the world to the true Christianity. Jesus Christ is God. I had a discussion with Jehovah's Witnesses one time. They didn't know, they didn't realize that they've been studying the Gospel of John for six years. They were dealing with the wrong person. I'm not saying I'm anything great, but I know John's purpose of his Gospel, one of his purposes is that he is God. From the first chapter of John to the 21st chapter of God, he is God. And I was talking to them, and they were beating around the bush, they, they, and I was saying, but, he, but it says here, but it says here, but, and finally they just left. They couldn't take me anymore. <laughs> I like what Dr. Kent Yu says about Thomas. He says, Thomas may have been slow to believe, but he was not slow to grasp the implications of Christ's resurrection. Jesus was not only his Lord, but his God. The evidence was palpable, substantive, and clear. Thomas's faith rested on solid rock. Hughes goes on to say, he says, what about us? The evidence is still just as substantive, just as palpable, just as clear. We have the written word of God, which is living and it's powerful. And then Jesus tells Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now was Jesus rebuking Thomas there? For not believing until he saw Jesus? Maybe, maybe not. If he was rebuking, it was a very mild rebuke. It's possible that Jesus meant that Thomas believed because he saw. And as Dr. Carson said, the next step to come into faith of those who cannot see but who will believe. And so he pronounces a blessing on them. In other words, Thomas, you saw and believe, but there are others who will come after you and cannot see and will believe. And they're blessed. Thomas was blessed too. Make no mistake about it. And this is you and me, and all believers ever since Christ ascended into heaven. Those who have not seen and believed are blessed. Now we may not have the physical Jesus here to see and believe, but we have the prophetic scriptures and the testimony of resurrected life. You don't only have the Bible. That's enough. But you have the testimony of of resurrected lives all around you. People that have been saved. <coughs> Do you believe? If you believe, you're blessed. God looks favorably on you because you believed in His Son. He wants the Son, honors the Father. And 29, verse 29 is a beautiful segue into verses 31, 30 and 31, which is John's purpose of writing the Gospel. You know, every... Sermon has a main theme. Did you know that? Every text of scripture has a main theme. If I'm expounding on this text of scripture, it has a main theme. Every book of the Bible has a purpose. With every sermon, you have to study the text that you are preaching. And after studying and doing your homework, on that particular text, 
you can find the main theme. It's the same with any book of the Bible. You need to study it and then come to the conclusion what its purpose is. Now, if you have a good, reliable study Bible, the homework is already done for you, and it will tell you its theme and its purpose. But with John's Gospel, and I want you to hear this, he tells us why he wrote the Gospel. John tells us why he wrote the Gospel. There's no guesswork here. Let's go to verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. This is important. But these are written... So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. This is John's climax. This is John's conclusion. This is John's purpose of writing his gospel. When we read John's gospel, all the signs that Jesus did, and there were more, John tells us there was was more, but when we read the ones He already did, and all that he taught, his death and his resurrection, it was recorded for one reason and one reason only. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see the signs that we read about Jesus in, in, in the Gospel of John are evidence of who he is. He's not just a man, but he's God clothed in humanity who came to redeem us from God's holy wrath and our sins. This verse is an invitation. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to believe in Jesus. And when we believe, we have eternal life. This doesn't mean we believe intellectually. The word believe means to believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance. You see, the word of God is sufficient to save. I know many people say they believe, but you can tell when you talk to them, they're not completely trusting in the resurrected Christ. They're trusting in other things, but they're not trusting in the resurrected Christ. When God talks about believing, it means clinging to the Savior. He means trusting in the Savior, relying on Him. We don't need anything else but the testimony of Scripture to believe. And the invitation can be applied both to believers and non-believers. To a non-believer it says, come, come to Christ, have your sins washed away, come, have eternal life. To the believer, it says this, continue in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a believer today, this message should encourage you to continue in the Lord Jesus Christ. Continue in Him. Don't be, don't be sideswiped by the world. Don't let your flesh, the world, and the devil push you aside and get your thinking off of Christ. Continue in the Lord. Let me conclude here. Don't let life rob you of the reality that as a Christian, Christ's presence, peace, and His Word belong to you. You possess them. God gave them to you. Anxieties, fears, problems can erode your understanding and sense of Christ's resurrection presence in your life. They can rob you of real peace. And they can work the Word word of God, they can make the Word of God ineffective in your life. Not that the Word of God is in the, it's not effective, but the anxieties, the fears, the problems prevent the Word of God to ritually dwell in you if we allow it. If we pay more attention to the anxieties and the fears and the problems of this life, they can rob us of the peace. When we open our Bible and allow it to wash us clean, we will see the resurrected Christ of the Scriptures. 
And it will, by the power of the Holy Spirit, assure us of His presence and bring peace to our hearts that passes all understanding. And we will shout when we have that peace to a lost and dying world. He's alive. He's alive. Blessed are you who did not see and believe. Let me conclude with this. The lyrics of a hymn by Keith and Kristen Getty and Ed Cash called Christ is Risen. He is risen indeed. And I'm only going to read the third verse and the chorus. Where doubt and darkness once had been, they saw him and their hearts believed. But blessed are those who have not seen, yet sing hallelujah. Once bound by fear, now bold in faith, they preach the truth and power of grace. And pouring out their lives, they gain life, life everlasting. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Oh, sing hallelujah. Join the chorus. Sing with the redeemed. He is risen. He is risen indeed.